It's happening again. Welcome to Work Cookie, a CBOC podcast. As we broadcast around the world, get bite-sized morsels and tidbits from our industrial organizational psychologists, other experts, and the latest research on the workplace to boost your organization's effectiveness. Sign up now at CBOC.com. That's S-E-B-O-C.com to engage with our community, gain a sense of belonging, access our other media, and get rapid advice from our experts. Would it be a bad idea to make your most challenging workplace problems go away? Hello, this is Dr. Jeremy Lookaball, workplace communication and negotiation coach, as well as industrial organizational psychology consultant. In addition to cboc.com that you just heard, you can also visit my website at termboot.com. Also on the panel today, we have Sarah Smith-Berry of Frigo Consulting. Sarah is a psychometrician, veteran advocate, consultant, and modern stoic. Also, we have Tom Bradshaw, voice and speech coach, and a damn good actor at that. He is the leading voice and speech coach for the industrial organizational psychology community. And today we're going to be talking about how to recruit to reduce turnover. Uh, we've got some great perspectives from um, Jeremy and some other IOs in the room. I'm, I'm sure will join us here on stage. Uh, and if you'd like to join the conversation, please raise your hand and Jeremy will get you up onto the stage as well. Uh, and especially now with what we're seeing with the great resignation, it, it really is important to be looking at this. Uh, we, we know that you know, even a couple of months ago, we were seeing statistics that something like 60% of people in the employment world were looking at changing their jobs uh, in the next short while. And we're starting to see it now with a great resignation. Uh, Sarah, great to see you here as well. Welcome. And Jeremy, let's kick this off. Um, We are seeing the great resignation. There are a lot of people who are either changing their positions or they're considering changing their positions. And it's going to be incredibly important for those people doing the hiring to, you know, recruit well to reduce that turnover. So, you know, you you know, you're the one who created this question for today. So you want to give us some sort of the background on on how it sort of came to you and, and why you thought it was important. Yeah, sure. Tom, can I get a quick audio check? Am I low? High? Sound good? Uh, you're a little high. You maybe are a little echoey, but um, it's sounding pretty good. Okay. Um, I'll change that for the future. Um, and I brought I brought Linda and up because I had uh, really wanted her perspective on on where to go with this. <clears throat> so recruiting, you know, recruiting to re- to reduce reduce turnover. So we're really looking at the beginning and the end, and most people focus on the middle. To, to reduce turnover. So here we're combining these two, and that's especially why I, I created this topic with Sarah in mind too, because of her strong look at the psychometrics metrics of everything, getting the right people in the right positions and places in organizations in terms of hiring. And it really it really comes down to this, this huge question. We have, we're at a crossroads. We have AI, right? So that is helping to, depending on how the AI is used, it's really working on either top of funnel or even sometimes the bottom of funnel during the recruiting process. So that's, it's, there's so much controversy around different things, even if used the right way. And then it all comes back to even the, I'm getting reports from people that are being interviewed for these big positions, these important positions. And their entire interview process consists of 
two interviews, you know, an hour and a half to, to, to determine if this person is, is the right fit. I know, I know companies are pressed for time and I'm not advocating taking every potential candidate out to lunch and, and on these retreats because that's not feasible. But really, how long are, are, are companies underestimating the, 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 the time it takes to really get a bead on a candidate? That's question one. Question two, are candidates frustrated with that experience? And then if they're not hired, are they saying they only did, they, they looked at me for an hour and a half and decided I was the wrong candidate? First off, from a, a, an IO psych point of view, that, that does there's no chance in there uh, for work samples. There's no chance in there for really role playing for scenarios for the very important things. But even more importantly, this is question three, what about the candidates who are hired? And if you're hired after only an hour and a half, do you really feel that you were chosen for the right for the right reasons? Do you really feel like you were chosen because you're that great addition to the company? So it's those three those three different parts that I really wanted to look at. And I know uh, Linda Ann here is our, our in-house uh, HR specialist, and then we have others uh, in the room who are HR specialists with an IO. Um, lens. So I wanted to start off um, with handling it back to you, Tom, because you are the, the moderator master here. So I'll put it back over to you. And Tom, you just turned your mic off. Oh, rather than it is really sensitive. Um, <laughs> uh, before we go to Linda and I, Sarah, I see you have your hand up. And uh, so let's open up your mic and let's hear, you know, your response because I also have a question for you, but, but let's go ahead first, Sarah. Thank you, Tom. First of all, is my volume better? Perfect. Yay. Okay. Hello, everybody. Okay. So uh, very good topic this week for myself. Of course, I'm getting a little bit excited. Tom can probably hear it in my voice because this is my wheelhouse. This is what I do. So I will do my best to try to slow down my speech and make sure that I'm not speaking too quickly. But when Jeremy was asking all those questions about the length of time that it takes and everything else to bring on candidates, I would answer that question with right now, they're trying to get, and pardon my French, ass and seat as fast as they possibly can. They just need warm bodies at this point. Um, and so, yes, some of the processes are being rushed a little bit, but I'm also seeing the other end of the spectrum where they are taking, you know, the interview process to a whole new degree of scrutiny. Um, so I'd love to hear from Linda Ann to see what she's been seeing um, because it really has been a case of extremes, at least in my neck of the woods. Before we go to Linda Ann, I just wanted to ask you briefly, Sarah, you know, you talk a lot about isometrics. How do those help, you know, and, and all of the sort of data that you can collect how does that help in making a wise decision about who to hire? Okay, so real quick, psychometrics, um, I want to put out a disclaimer. Um, I do not believe they're the end-all be-all when it comes to decision-making for placement of an employee within a position. So let me start by saying that. Am I a psychometrician? Is that my specialty? Absolutely. But do I believe that organizations should rely on psychometrics um, in a way that is unhealthy or unsustainable, absolutely not. So that's why I think it's key to make sure that you have a practitioner driving any sort of um, psychometric initiative for assessments for employees. 
Um, I don't believe that it's as simple as getting someone certified in DISC um, and allowing them to do it. Um, I think that can be damaging over time or at least not sustainable. It's not something that they're going to keep up with. Um, it's likely to retire itself from lack of use. Um, but anyway, I digress there. The, the benefit to using psychometrics um, in a hiring sense is that skills and abilities are things that change over time. And they are things that change over time quite substantially for most people, right? We have a general trajectory of where we go from the time that we become business professionals to the time where we decide, you know, we're, we're comfortable where we are. We're no longer trying to evolve or, or attain new heights in our careers. Okay. And that's a long process and sometimes it doesn't end. So skills and abilities or what is on the resume and all of those KSAs. So knowledge, skills, and abilities, those things are changing constantly. So thinking from a recruiting perspective that you can look at a piece of paper and understand a candidate by looking at that piece of paper as almost as if it's a static element is the wrong, the wrong way to go about this, first of all. Second of all, the psychometrics, when they come into play, that is actually giving you the head and heart of the individual, okay? And those things, the values and the cognitive preferences and behavioral preferences, those things don't change as much. They do change but it's usually within one standard deviation. I'm sure a lot of the IOs in the room understand what I'm saying um, when I'm talking about that. So you're not going to change within two standard deviations of the mean, okay? So really the changes, and that's over a 60-year period. So the changes in cognitive preference, the changes in behavioral styles, um, we can do all of the self-help we want. We really don't change all that much. So it's really important when we're looking at, say, a sales team and we're needing to increase the number of individuals that we have on a sales team and we're needing to increase the number of, say, um, outbound leads, okay? In that situation, you're going to need to bring on people who are highly gregarious. If you are only going off of a resume and interviews, that person that you know, may or may not be gregarious, could be behaving differently in an interview setting because we all behave differently in interview settings. We put our best foot forward. We say yes to every question. Essentially, are you this? Can you do this? Yes, of course I can because we're trying to set ourselves up for success and getting that ultimate job offer. Where assessments come into play is sometimes you'll have a candidate who looks like a perfect fit, but then when you take into the behavioral considerations of what you're looking for, maybe they're a better fit for a different position on your team, or you can find an area where they might be able to apply their skills in a better way. So this is how I counsel a lot of the people that I work with is not using assessments to pigeonhole candidates into specific positions, but instead using it to understand the full picture of a potential candidate and then almost using that to self-define as we've been taught in IO school and everything else to self-define a role within the organization that is going to, without a doubt, increase the level of retention. And I hope I did not speak too quickly just then. <laughs> uh, no, clearly. Tom, not. there you have it. Tom, ask a really good question and you get a really good answer. I love it. Um, well, it's, speaking of really good answers, it's time to bring Linda Ann in. And, and Linda Ann, you know, I always consider HR as kind of the front line when it comes to making these type of 
you know, decisions. Um, so what have you been seeing out there? Well, for me, you know, I, I appreciate the question of how you, how do you recruit to reduce turnover? But from my perspective, the recruitment process is really just the tip of the iceberg. Um, and the, the retention is really not going to be that much influenced by the, the recruitment process itself. That's more organizational, in my opinion. There's a whole lot of other things that go into the actual retention. I mean, there's, there's keys that you could take place with the recruitment process, but that's not the key to retention. I mean, they have to do, to me, they have to um, really get their house in order because otherwise, if you don't have things like coordination between your strategic plan, your projected budget and your hiring plan, then you're just doing what, what Sarah said is just getting warm bodies in a hot seat. And, uh, you know, it's important to really make sure, do that assessment to determine, you know, do we really need to hire a person or is it just that our processes are so poor that we're missing deadlines and we figure we, if we hire somebody else, it's going to um, fix the problem. And what that does is when you bring that person on and they see that you're disorganized and your processes aren't very good, you're already losing that person for the next, you know, for the next year or whatever. So I, I don't think it's just in the recruitment process. However, with regard to the recruitment process that I've seen, uh, especially in the past year and a half and so forth, I have a couple of pet peeves. One is a job description is not an employment ad. I don't work for you yet. I mean, if you look across the board, how many people can say my job, even though they might have the same title, that my job is the same as your job, all right? Now, the problem that that really causes is there's, it creates a real disparity in who you're getting to apply to your job. And it's, it's, it affects also the DE and I because women will only apply if they are at like 85, 90% qualified for the job, which they perceive. And if you're looking at a job description, that's a whole lot of qualifications. Men, on the other hand, will apply if they're about 60% qualified according to what's being posted. So that in and of itself creates a disparity. Um, so that's my two cents so far. I don't want to dump a whole lot <laughs> all at once. <laughs> we, we could have a whole other show. Um, l let me ask you, <laughs> you know, especially with you know, the transition we're going through, and, and now there's the remote or hybrid workforce. Um, is that becoming part of the consideration now in hiring? It is, and it's really creating that huge divide of people. If you're not, if you say to me that you need to be in my in a seat for forty hours a week or whatever, people are just saying nope. You know that's that's a real um, decider for a good percentage of the the population because they have options and. It's not a real need anymore. It used to be, you know, people would ask for, you know, work from home or flexibility or something. And, and the company could say, no, that's not something that we um, support. Well, that's not a real excuse anymore because everybody did it for the past 18 months. So it's just, it's a, dis 
it's an outlier. You know, it's going to disqualify a good percentage of the possible applicants. Thank you very much for that. And Ariana, great to see you on the stage. And, you know, you kind of are, you know, the modern workplace is something that you're looking at. So, you know, what advice do you have in recruiting to reduce, you know, turnover? And especially with this change that we're seeing, how is it going to affect it? Yes, thank you. Um, great to be here, as usual, and great to see some familiar faces. Um, something that I would mention is just the topic or idea of having congruence. I really believe in realistic job previews, being very clear on what you'll be doing, what are the advantages of this role, but what are also some of the challenges and common obstacles. So that way you're not giving someone this unrealistic idea of what their job is going to be and then doing what can feel like a bait and switch once you're in that position. I also think that we're seeing um, a greater desire um, and demand for organizations to be purpose-driven. So also really getting that role fit and person organization fit, making sure that people are coming to work for the organization because they can contribute to a bigger mission and feel like they're having greater purpose because those are going to be some of the things that help you retain people long term, even if they do encounter obstacles once they're in the role. Tom, you went, excuse me, you went on and off with your mic. Uh, there we go. Um, must be my thumbs. Um, Ariana, let me ask you, do you think we're in the in the beginning of a culture shift then that, you know, the relationship between you know, the frontline workers and those people in management is changing and adjusting. You know, I really do. I think that we are on a big shift right now. And I think it ties into the great resignation. Um, but I just read a Fortune CEO daily um, newsletter that I get that said, like, we are on the cusp of something new. And if the last 50 years were characterized by efficiency in the workplace, then this time is really characterized by resiliency and purpose. And so CEOs running giant companies are now having new responsibilities as it relates to social issues, as it relates to environmental issues and creating a meaningful organization where people feel like they are helping to improve the world is important in a way that I think we've never seen before. Yeah, I'd highly agree. Uh, Jake and Angelo, great to see you on the stage as well. Jake, let's go to you first. I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on what we've been talking about so far. Yeah, sure. I just want to make sure you... Yeah, once again, you're just a little low. If you could turn your volume up just a hair, that'd be great. I have no idea how to do that, but I could talk closer to my phone if that works. That works too. Cool. Uh, so I've been doing some research about just hiring processes recently. And I think long-term it would look at turnover, but it really looks at employee effectiveness and predictors of job performance. And it's just interesting to me that some things like personality tests are rated so low on predict being a good predictor of job performance. Meanwhile, every time I apply to a jo job, they ask me to do some kind of predictive index test that sees if I'm a wolf or a lion or a tiger. And they don't really know how to use that information to make hiring decisions. Meanwhile, something like general mental ability tests proved to be one of the best predictors of job performance. And I think that's something Sarah went into a little bit earlier. And that's something people are rarely tested on while applying. I just think there's a large disconnect between what actually works to figure out what makes people productive at work and good applicants 
versus what really is easier to do and what people have just been doing forever. And I think long-term that would impact turnover because you're finding better employees. Yeah, uh, very uh, much agreed. Um, Linda, Ann, let's go to you next and then Angela will come to you right after that. Um, yeah, and I think that that um, to, to follow up on that, you know, some of the, the recruitment processes are are pretty onerous. And I think they're filtering out a whole lot of people, qualified people, before they ever get even in the door. They never, their resumes are never seen. So when we look at, you know, people complaining about there's not good qualified candidates out there, or there's a labor shortage, I don't think that's a real thing. It may be seen that way, but I don't think it's a real thing. I think it's processes that are creating that artificially. Um, and I think that also, you know, when we look at, getting those people in the door. And I think that instead of also just relying on resumes, we need to start doing some questionnaires about how they would perform that job. And that would take some of the pieces out where some people just perform well in interviews, but really do have the qualifications, don't perform well in interviews, but really do have the qualifications. Plus it's a leave behind to help people, um, evaluate people after they do come in for an interview so that you have seven or eight full pages of questionnaires and you can look at how did they answer this question because instead of just a memory or a recency kind of factor um, and it's 10 questions on really technical things how would you perform this or do you have this experience and those kinds of things uh, also when we hire I think going to um, Arlena's uh, purpose-driven uh, process that we're really looking for in, in, as we move forward is to hire for people who, are, who share the same value systems and have the potential for development versus a track record. Because then you have a way of putting someone in a position that is ready for a career path within your organization, as opposed to maybe outgrowing you shortly and becoming dissatisfied. So thanks for- <laughs> Well, you're very welcome. Uh, Angelo, why don't you unmute your mic and join us here? You've always got some great perspective on some of these topics. <laughs> Good morning. Thank you for inviting me up. Um, yeah, I think, you know, just to add on to what everyone said, I think some of the big things are um, like the realistic job previews, realistic job um, examples and essential skills or essential duties that are going to be done. But I feel like what's really missed in a lot of this is really understanding the employee's motives as well, right? Um, Ariana mentioned that the ESGs or the environmental, social and governance aspects of a lot of corporations, businesses and companies are beginning to be um, more heavily weighted on the job seeker side. They want to work for or work with companies that are aligned with their values, their mission, and their interests. So I feel like the, the better that a, a company can connect to their employees or potential employees' motives, the more engaged they're going to be in the work that they're doing. And also, I think, again, right, like what we first brought up with how how short some of these interviews can be, you really don't get an idea of how some of those transferable skills may be fitting into this role exactly. Or if there's another role within the company 
that an applicant may fit better in just because, again, when we talk about what makes qualified applicants or what makes a good hire, um, you know, so I feel like a lot of times we get lucky, right? We, we have a certain criteria we're looking for, but then we probably underestimate how much support, how much training and how much coaching we're also giving those um, those employees versus just a general person who would have applied if you were to apply those same in-depth coaching, in-depth training, upskilling, reskilling, or um, just putting the right person in the right place makes such a big difference. And I don't, I don't necessarily see that always taking place in the current model that we have right now for um, applying in interviews, especially when it comes to some of the job descriptions and applicant tracking systems. We do miss a lot of qualified people just because they may not necessarily be aware of their own transferable skills, but they know and they're motivated to still do this job or the job that jobs that they're applying to. And if we can get behind that, I feel like that's that would be a huge piece to increase in retention. So if I hear you clearly, you know, not only is work changing, but we have to really look at changing how we're recruiting. Um, let me ask you this, because, you know, if you want to retain those employees, how much of a role is the culture of the organization or the culture that the employees are building. You know, we, we, you know, in the old paradigm, there was always the water cooler and everyone gathered around the water cooler or the coffee machine and they would, you know, share conversations sometimes about work, sometimes about their lives. But is it really important to develop that in the organization of today? Absolutely. I think as far as the, the cultural system and cultural changes go, um, that's where you're really finding like you're one, you should already have a good idea of what your mission, your values and um, the culture of an organization should already look like. But again, right, if you can match someone's work and get that buy-in and engage them to say, hey, how do you see your role fitting into this mission? And again, like we go back to some of the hybrid roles, it's that's not only discussing, you know, work from home, work in the office, work at a Starbucks. We're also talking about hybrid roles and the, the responsibilities and duties that a person may perform in their overall job, given that flexibility to say, hey, they may be they may have something that really fits this mission, really fish, fits this vision of the organization that may not necessarily also be in their job description, right? It goes back to you can have two people in the same role and they could be doing different jobs. But as long as they're still feeding back in, they're developing that culture. And as long as their work builds and can contribute to it, I think that's where you start to see some of that engagement. Yeah, agree 100%. Ariana, let's go over to you. Tob, I just wanted to do a quick segue on the topic that you're bringing up around in person, in a remote or hybrid setting. And what is the role of that? And I know this is a little bit off topic from recruitment, but I think that's something that I've been trying to think about as we go into this new world of remote work. And as just anecdotal evidence, I was on a remote team for about a year before I met a single one of my colleagues in person. And honestly, um, by the end of the year, I was feeling a little bit burnt out and a little bit disconnected from the team into the organization. And thankfully, we all um, met at an annual business planning retreat 
and I got to meet my colleagues for the first time. And during those um, outside of meeting sessions where we were grabbing drinks or dinner, I got to know them on a different level and their personalities were a little bit different than I had been expecting. And I got to learn more about what they thought of me and our team dynamics. So I'd be really intrigued to hear what anyone else has to say on the role of meeting outside of work um, if you are in a fully remote job and what the role of creating culture that enables those touch points um, could look like. That's a great point. And, and Jeremy, I want to start with you on that. Because at Virtual Communication Mastery, we've actually been looking at that and developing some ideas around it. And it's, you know, it, that connection between employees is incredibly important. And it's not only outside of, of the work hours, but it's actually, you know, what tools can we give them to socialize, you know, during work sometimes. And Tom, that, that's a great Ariana, it made me think of uh, how people can have such different at-home personalities yet still function well together as a team if, if done the right way. Years ago, I had a, a boss take – we had a well, well-oiled um, team of like six or seven, and our boss took us out at a, this nice you know, brick oven pizza place, and we had some drinks. And he <laughs> – one of his comments was – it's no secret that the the six of us wouldn't normally hang out if we hadn't met each other at work because we were just all such different people, like completely different people when it comes to uh, like a private life. But we were a well-oiled machine because what we, we worked on those, appreciating the qualities of each other, knowing each other's strengths, knowing that, look, hey, this person has this quirk. And here's how it benefits the team. And here's how it's going to save your butt from time to time. So it's all about really getting to know the personalities. And the, it's, it's really about getting to know the productivity, productivity styles and work personalities of your team. And then appreciating that there are differences. You, you might not want to go out and, uh, and have lunch, have some drinks with some of the people that you work with. But you can have a very nice team dynamic um very effective team dynamic so ariana i just wanted to, to thank you for <laughs> bringing that uh, recollection back to mind well and and let me pass it yeah or bring it back to to the notion of recruiting uh, and jeremy i'm going to stick with you on this because you know recruiting has traditionally been you know i put up the hiring notice and then I invite candidates in, we sit down and we chat, but now we're in the remote world. And so that connection, you know, especially during the pandemic, it wasn't happening in the office, it was, it was happening online, but it's opened up the possibilities for organizations to recruit really from all over the world, <laughs> which comes with its own, you know, positives and negatives. But is there something, you know, not only with recruiting online and having those interviews online but the notion that you know a, a company in the united states may be looking to build a brand new team and they may actually be looking at having you know i'm going to put together six people on this team two are going to be here in the states two are going to be in europe and two are going to be in asia so what kind of issues is that going to bring to the table in terms of issues i'll say i'll say Op, you know, options and opportunities. 
it, this all, and we're going to, I'll, I'll say this for the room. Let's try not to get into a, a conversation about the personality assessments because we, we all love those things. And when we do, we really go hard at it. But I'll say a lot of that, once you, once you funnel down and, and you've decided on just a handful of candidates, that's when valid uh, work, work, psych work assessments really help to understand how, how this person will work with other people on the team. And you'll have the, the people that, that the people that know what they're doing will take not only if you have a team and you have someone coming in and you decided to use a new assessment, you got to use that whole assessment on the current team that's there because otherwise you're not going to know how that person's going to interact with the other person on the team because you're not getting a whole picture of the team. So it would be a good idea to have everyone on that team to take the same assessment. And that's when you have someone, an IO psychologist come in and say, all right, now I have a snapshot of the team. Now we can work with these personalities. And I psychologist is going to look at a number of things. And I know Sarah's chomping at the bit to mention some of what those things are. And I, I hope she will. Um, and j just one of them is really this, the influence style. You know, it's uh, you look at this vector valence kind of thing. Are, if you have a team that's overly relying on their ability to influence uh, people through people and get things passed because this person thinks it's a good idea, they've rubbed shoulders, if it's overly relying on that, you're going to have some problems. If they're over relying on history, task, this is what the data shows, you're going to have some problems. But if you have a nice mix, if you have a nice kind of you know positive negative score, you're right in the middle. That's where, but it takes an assessment to know this, and you've got to get that whole that whole understanding. The next thing, I'll, the the last thing I'll say, Tom, because you asked about really just re, this recruiting. It, when we look at the validity of re, of recruiting methods, um, when you're rec, when you're when you're having that interview, some recruiters, some managers get a kick out of the other person feeling awkward. They get a kick out of. Uh, it being so formal, but you're really not on, you know, it's not how the real work, work world is going to be. So my, uh, I'm always careful of the word advice. My, hey, my advice is that what, what is the level, what is the optimal level of stress, curiosity, and, um, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, tension because it requires all those to, to work that a candidate would have based on this jobs, based on the job requirements, based on the profile of this, of, of this job and based on the culture that this person would be working in and try to do things using your own expertise, charm, and charisma as a recruiter, as a manager to bring that candidate to a level uh, tension wise, stress wise. Does it need to be less formal, more conversational? Uh, yes, you want to stick with your standardized processes to be asking the same questions and those kinds of things. But do you need to change your tone of voice? Tom, this is the kind of thing, stuff that you help recruiters with. But how do you make it so that you're really getting a beat on how they'll perform and not judging? You're, you're hiring them for a skill. You're not hiring them for their interview skills. It will come into play if it's a customer service position, X, Y, Z. But it's just like with, think about it in this way with math tests, with, um, you know, third graders? Are you measuring, you know, how hard are the math questions? Are you really measuring their ability to do math or are you measuring their ability to read? Because you can have a storyline with a math problem in there, 
But at what point are you measuring math ability versus reading ability? Same kind of thing with interviews. Are you measuring interview skills and that observation? Or are you measuring um, and getting a beat on how they would be on the job? So just different things to consider along the way. Tom, back to you. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Uh, we've got two hands up right now. Linda Ann, you were first. Let's go to you next. And then Sarah, yeah, we're going to bring you back in. But Linda Ann, let's go. Um, I have uh, two, two points to make on this, and that is, one, when people interview from globally, basically, um, it's really important, that cultural aspect of how they approach someone who's interviewing them is really important to consider. I've worked with a couple of people and, you know, they were applying for jobs that were like in Canada, but they were from South America. And those, the perception of asking questions of the interviewer was a very difficult one for them to grasp because it's been more of a, they're the authoritarian and you know, I answer the questions they give me. And so it's important to have the correct expectation for the culture, because if you're interviewing globally, how they respond to you as an interviewer is going to be very different. And it, you may not be really evaluating the skills as, as what was said that they'll be using in their job, as was stated earlier. The other thing, too, to that you need to consider when you're recruiting globally is what pay scale will you be using? Are you going to use the pay scale that's appropriate for their country or are you going to use one that's appropriate that is um, uh, correctly stratified for your organization? Because uh, and that's a that's a sticky topic, because if you're paying them U.S. dollars, but they're in India, that can completely throw off, you know, how they function within that society. And it could pay lock them severely if they want to leave your organization. So those are two things that are really um, things that need to be decided and, and approached before you engage in a global hiring process. Well, that's a couple of really good points. Uh, Sarah, let's go to you next. Okay, well, we might have moved on from my response there, Tom. Um, but I understand that these conversations take twists and turns. So one of the things that I wanted to bring up, though, is this concept of assessments and pigeonholing and limitations behind them and everything else. Because as Jake mentioned, um, sometimes you can apply to a position and suddenly they're wanting you to take an assessment and you're kind of like hesitant to do so, right? Well, that hesitancy is actually part of it um, for many people. And that will turn away a lot of those candidates who are going to have that sort of privacy or hesitancy. So that's something that needs to be understood before it is made um, kind of an automatic part of the hiring process. But what I will say is this, different strokes for different folks, meaning independently of who you are actually um, going after. So like I would say, if you were going after, say, an executive, okay, and you're, you're hiring to fill this executive level position, I would not use a type-based assessment. I would use a trait-based assessment. Um, and the reason I would do that is because there's going to be specific traits that are needed, and they typically to be a little bit more expensive. They're a little bit more in-depth, so they require more time from the pr practitioner. So they're not something that are easily scalable. 
But to Jake's point earlier, he was requested to take a PI assessment. I myself am a PI practitioner. That is one of the assessments I actually use in my business model. However, it would not be used in the situation of, say, hiring an executive or a person who was going to be overseeing lots of people because it would not be a responsible application of that particular assessment. And I think that's something we need to emphasize within the IO community, especially within those that are going to be uh, becoming certified in different psychometrics, is you need to understand which tool to use and when. And I always err on the side of a battery of assessments is better than one. Um, and that way, yeah, it is more work for you. So that's great because you get to charge more if you're an outside consultant, but also the quality of the information, because you can aggregate that data and give it to them in a nice, beautiful report. It's a lot more valuable than anything that can be automated. The other thing that I would caution anyone who's thinking about getting into assessments or psychometrics in the hiring process, the interview process, or what have you is this idea of making it easy and scalable. I don't believe that finding the best person for the right role should be necessarily easy, scalable, or in a way repeatable in an automated sort of way. I think that is where we end up creating lots of problems systemically um, and so like Linda Ann was saying, that whole warm body thing that we had mentioned at the beginning, that can really turn into an Achilles heel for organizations. Or here's another example that I absolutely love. I will work with a company, okay? And they'll work with me for six months to a year. And then they'll decide that they know everything they need to know. And they'll decide to stop working with me because they've learned everything they need, right? And so they're going to do it themselves now. That is so, I've, they fall on their faces every single time. And then they, they, they almost want to blame the practitioner, right? And the reason is, it's because you don't have that third party that isn't affected by the internal hierarchy. I say this all the time. Outside IO, in my personal opinion, is more effective for things like new initiatives because our livelihood is not tied to the success of the initiative. You're paying us either way. And so I really think that level of bias should be taken into account when any new initiative is started. Um, and like Linda Ann was saying, there's a lot of things that need to be considered before you decide to do anything at scale. So yeah, that's, that's my two cents there. Thank you very much for that. And and Jake, um, how much of, of what Sarah was saying, you know, rang true to you or is there any sort of adjustment you'd make to that? Yep. I may have missed some of what she said. I spilled water all over my computer while listening. But one thing that did perk my interest a little bit was discussing the effectiveness of these assessments. I was reading research recently that argued of validity, I think it was a 0.22 on assessments predicting performance during the interviews. And the reason wasn't because the assessments weren't good. It was because the people navigating them weren't trained on how to actually use them and use them to make decisions. So I think it's more the fact that maybe a new recruiter is using assessments to screen candidates and somebody like Sarah is not doing it who is clearly trained and knows how to use them effectively. 
I just want to respond really quickly to that spot on Jake, like spot on. If I could record, have recorded you and play that back to every single potential client or existing client, um, just so that they understand that this is not a tool to put in the hands of a recruiter, um, unless that recruiter is going to take the time to understand trait-based assessments and how they're different from type-based assessments and how these assessments aggregate their data and whether or not they take in, you know, validity studies that are cross-cultural. And I mean, there's so much that we could go into there, but the truth is they don't have time to put every single one of their recruiters through that. And that's why they should be working with a practitioner. Yes, we're expensive, but we're expensive for a reason and you get what you pay for. And that is really at the end of the day, what it comes down to those clients that do choose to work with me, they do pay the price tag. They always end up doing well. They always end up getting that huge retention spike close to 30% sometimes. That's massive. Okay. Massive. Um, but then there's others who want to take the quick and easy route. Okay. They want to get access to these assessments. They want to do it at scale and then they want to roll it out within a six month period without any sort of formal training for their people or anything else. And they fall on their faces and then they want to blame the assessments. And, you know, I, I don't necessarily like a hammer can be used multiple ways, right? A tool is a tool and it's the application of the tool. That's important. Um, as long as it's a quality hammer, as long as it's a quality assessment, you will be able to do multiple things with it. But at the end of the day, it's the practitioner that you're paying for. So anyway, I, I'll get off my soapbox, but that's, that's how I feel about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's okay. I think I'm about to bring you right back onto that soapbox uh, because, you know, I can really see that assessments can help you find, you know, maybe the best candidate. But is there an assessment out there that's going to help you find, and I know there's not a 100% guarantee here, but help you find the long-term employee, someone who's going to want to grow, you know, have themselves grow with the organization? Absolutely. So that would actually be um, what a, a type, excuse me, a, not a type-based assessment, a trait-based assessment that's measuring independently. So basically, um, each side of the scale is measured independently. So they don't say, here's an example, they don't put introversion as an opposition to extroversion, they measure introversion on its own scale and extroversion on its own scale. So that way you get situational data. And in that way, you're also able to get different personas. So we all have what is described as like an underlying persona, which is the persona that we're most comfortable with the one that if we were on a desert island, and everything was perfect, and we had everything we needed, and all the people that we wanted around us, that would be one person, right? And then you also have your everyday, the person you show up as that's the person who adapts to the environment, okay? And then you have your overextended, which is how you behave under pressure or stress. Those three people, I like to describe it as separate people. Yes. <laughs> Those three people can be incredibly different in some people. And so having that full broad picture of situational data for an individual is incredibly important. But again, that's for trait based assessments. And those are more expensive. They're more time intensive. They require one on one readbacks, they require extensive work after the readback. So um, most of the time, those are reserved for high level positions. 
I would start counseling organizations to start using them more for high impact positions. Um, difference between those being, of course, the amount of touch points. Um, so maybe points of influence or um, points of oversight that that individual is involved in. Um, I would start counseling that more. And actually, I have been doing that a little bit more recently. Um, because at the end of the day, sometimes those higher level positions that we attribute so much of the company culture success around are actually not as um, high influencing as we think they are. It might be, um, you know, a mid-level manager who's extra gregarious and has a lot of touch points um, because they network a lot within the organization. Um, and in that instance, giving that person access to a developmental assessment and the, the readback that goes along with that could be huge for, for culture, right? Because just because that individual is going to spread information faster. So there's so many different levels to this. And so when I sit down with, with a client or a potential client really is where this conversation starts. Those are the types of questions I ask. So who are your internal champions for in, for new initiatives? And usually they have a couple people who spring right to mind. Well, this person's always excited. This person's always spreading information. And actually that's the person I always choose to, to bring on um, to help uh, whenever I'm building out a new initiative. So that's one little hack that you can do without taking an assessment. Um, you can you can just ask, hey, who's the person that normally steps forward in, in these types of instances? And um, you'll be able to get yourself some internal support that way. So I have a question for Sarah on that. And and thank you for that. And Linda, and let's me, go to you. You know, Tom, you had asked about doing this assessment to really um, identify who would be kind of a perfect fit for a given organization. And once you have that any number of um, coordinated assessments that Sarah might do with this person and you put it, this person in an organization that's dysfunctional or disorganized, the amount of uh, opportunity for retention there would seem to me that it would just lead to a, a high level of frustration for that organization. Can you give me some perspective on how you feel about that? Of course. So um, the way that people respond to chaotic environments internally and disorganization and that, um, that's another trait that can be measured. Um, so I would never counsel for an organization that is uh, dysfunctional, say, and has systemic issues to begin hiring using assessments. Okay. I, I, would, I would start by addressing um, the internal issues first. Um, and the systemic issues first. And the reason I would go about doing that is just what you're, what you're talking about is you don't want to be bringing on individuals who are, say, fit for the role that they're going to be undertaking and, and reach that level of frustration because basically they're getting baited and switched, okay? They're being told that you're going to have this um, level of responsibility. These are the requirements from you. And sometimes they'll step into that and they're really playing catch up or they're putting band-aids on things and they're not actually doing the role that they signed up to do. Um, and in that case, yes, Linda Ann, that is going to be a potential red flag, uh, a retention issue. So um, in the instance 
where it has to be an executive though, and you have to bring an executive into that type of organization, you're going to make sure that you're bringing in someone who is very purposeful and um, competitive as well as collaborative. So um, believe it or not, competition and collaboration are opposing traits, but people can have both of them. And when they do, that's called a paradigm. And when you have someone that has these paradigms, they're able to switch back and forth between those two things. And I find that that particular paradigm between collaboration and competition is really effective for uh, fixing systemic issues on teams uh, because they will check in with the team as far as the collaborative nature of the team, but they're also competitive enough that they're going to keep everyone on track and they're winning focused and, and, and they're going to be able to redirect that team in almost like a leadership S type sense. So again, it's going to come down to situational and, and all of that. And so it's really hard to give advice on this sort of platform as like a blanket statement. But for me personally, I would be looking oh, for that paradigm because, you know, um, for someone I, I totally to come into an organization that, to fix systemic I made that issues. In, in my opening statement that, that, you know, the retention really is within the organization and not as much within it. It's more heavily weighted in my opinion with the organization than with, just the recruitment process. Sarah, let me, let me bring this to you next too, because Jeremy and I will often talk about trust that, you know, trust has really suffered during the pandemic. We have seen, you know, organizations start to implement spyware, you know, on their employees to make sure that they're working because they just don't trust them. But how much of trust should we be trying to establish in that recruitment drive? If we're getting to that, you know, that interview, what kind of a role can trust play or how do you even establish trust when you're maybe meeting someone for the first or second time? I would say Tom, that that really falls onto the, uh, like the whole recruiting onboarding process and what that looks like. So, okay. So an example would be, an organization that is interviewing rapidly because they're trying to rapid fill seats. Sometimes that can feel to the applicant like they are just a number, right? And we see over and over again that those companies that have that rapid hiring rate also are, they also have a, a low retention rate. Okay. And the reason for that is because it's really a candidate market now. It's not an employer market anymore. Now, I understand Linda Ann might differ in that opinion um, with me a little bit, perhaps not after I explain myself. But the reason being is candidates are more informed now. They're more informed about the idea of culture. They're more idea about the ideas of purpose and fit. They're looking for that as key factors in their choice with where they decide to end up. Okay. So they're actually looking for that now. Whereas before it was more of a, once I get there, I'll figure those things out kind of thing. Um, so I think within the hiring process, there needs to be, even before the interview, I think that there should be more of an informational interview where the company pitches itself to the, to the potential employee. And I know that that falls on the heads of the recruiters a lot of the time, but in my experience, a lot of the recruiters aren't very good at that. Um, and they're not because recruiting is its own arm of the organization. And sometimes it operates like its own entity, like its own business entity. Um, and so it can be kind of removed from the actual lines of business 
And so they might not have all of that information. Another thing that I really like to um, counsel people on when they're developing their hiring process is this. I love day in the lives. So I'm a millennial. I watch a ton of YouTube and I watch these day in the life videos like crazy. And so do my kids. And so does everyone I know. And these day in the life things, they give you perspective of what it's like to live a day in the life of this esque person, right? I counsel companies to create day in the lives. So this is a day in the life of a recruiter. This is a day in the life of a senior executive. This is a day in the life. And it's an actual video that is consumable. And this can actually create that trust, Tom, that you're talking about. Because now they get to see with their own eyes another individual performing the role that they're going to be performing real time. I mean, I'm sure it's going to be edited and all that to make it extra attractive. But at the same time, it gives them an idea of what it's going to look like. They're not going into it blind anymore. And I find that less people ghost the entire candidate experience when they have a little bit more information about what that day looks like. Sarah, I absolutely agree with you that that it is a candidate market. Well, thank you very much for that. And Linda, let's go back to you. uh, A great thing that it's a candidate market. It's helping drive the evolution and... I, I love the fact that it's a great uh, candidate's market. Um, and as far as a day in a life, I love that. And I've often racked my brain to think, how can I get people to actually switch roles for a day? In my first career life, um, I taught school and I taught a seventh grade and the elementary school teacher and I switched positions for like three days. And the amount of um, integration and and benefit that was reaped from just knowing, oh, this is how they're prepared. And, and she understood what they were going to do and, and what that did for the transition for the children was, was amazing. So I think day in a life is, should be an incorporated part of any team that needs to collaborate with another team. Um, and so I, I think those are great. The other thing that I wanted to mention just before we end up closing is, you know, the recruitment doesn't end on the day someone starts their job. You know, and from from my perspective, having been in marketing um, and sales at some point, there was a saying that, you know, the least expensive customer to get is the one that you already have. And so for me, I think there needs to be an adaptation of the mindset that recruitment basically continues for the tenure of the employee. You know, your orientation lasts for a few days. Your onboarding should last for at least a year to going through all those firsts. But the mindset that needs to be conveyed to managers is that you recruit your employees every day. Well, thank you for that very much, Linda. And, and you know, I've got so many more questions, you know, just percolating. Uh, but Jeremy, I see that our time Super. has run Quick out. Question so let me throw it back to you to wrap this up. In the audience, and a show of claps will do. As everyone knows, our one of our main goals is a sense of community and belonging, and also providing extreme value not only for um, you know everyone that current thrust of IO practitioners out there, um, but also for organizations uh, for people to come in and learn from some of the best and brightest. By the way, there we are. It, it's worth that. So this gets put out on work cookie, the podcast and the whole work cookie is bite-sized morsels and tidbits of human behavior in the workplace. I think it should be changed to smart cookies because there are some pros here. I got, I got a message from someone uh, on LinkedIn who was listening, who's, who's in the audience. 
and they just said, man, these pros are killing it. So congrats to everyone. It's so, it's such, so, so wonderful. So blessed to be here with all of you and all you great minds. Um, that considered, we're, we're considering making a switch to LinkedIn Live, where we would have obviously that LinkedIn Live component. To my understanding, everyone still has an opportunity to, um, to come on, on stage and talk. How many of you, the show of hands, would say, uh, on a show of hands, say, no, we have to keep it to deep dive? Is there a show of hands? Cynthia, show of hands. Anyone say, okay, yeah, we like deep dive, but we'll, we'll follow you to, uh, to LinkedIn Live if that's what we decide. A show of hands, claps. All right, great. Got some clap. Ooh, lots of claps. Great. Um, and, and again, it's a, it's a decision um, that, that we're, we're making based on a number of factors. So we'll keep you, we'll keep you, we'll keep you in, uh, in the loop. We will next Thursday. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. We're going to skip next Thursday for obvious reasons, but we're not going to have it on like a Tuesday or Wednesday. We're just going to we're going to relax next week and then we'll come back the week after that for uh, our next Thursday. Tom, I'm going to throw it over to you. Thank you so much, everyone. This is really incredible. I'm tickled. Tom, over to you to close out, please. Once again, I learned so much by coming to this room and I'm very honored to be moderating um, all of these really bright people. So once again, thank you very much. Join us in two weeks uh, if you're in the United States, uh, enjoy your Thanksgiving next weekend. If you're here with me in Canada, uh, enjoy the winter weather. <laughs> Until then, uh, this is Tom, and thank you, Jeremy, Sarah, Linda, and Jake for coming up on stage. Angelo, um, also uh, Ariana as well. And please, next time, if you feel like you cut, come up and join the conversation, please do. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work Cookie, a Seabock podcast. Don't forget to sign up at Seabock.com. That's S-E-B-O-C.com to engage with our community, gain a sense of belonging, access our other media, and get rapid advice from experts. Would it be a bad idea to make your most challenging workplace problems go away? Don't forget to check out our corporate, career boost, recruiter, and even student memberships at seabock.com. <laughs>